0: welcome to the 2023 New Zealand International Science Festival. My name's Helen Nicholson and I'm a member of the festival board and our vision for the festival is to create an event that inspires and engages the community with science. Science impacts so many aspects of our daily lives and is the source of so many opportunities to improve the way we live. So it goes without saying that engaging the community with science and ensuring that there are plenty of avenues for communicating important scientific messages is paramount to our social well-being. That is what we hope to provide, a fun, accessible and engaging festival all about science. So it's now my pleasure to introduce you to our moderator for this evening, my colleague Professor Peter Crampton. So Peter is a Professor of Public Health in the Kohatu uh, Centre for Hohoramari at the University of Otago. He started his professional life as a GP and later specialised in public health medicine. And his academic career has spanned a variety of roles, including serving as the University of Otago Pro Vice-Chancellor of Health Sciences and Dean of the Otago Medical School. Peter's research is focused on social indicators and social epidemiology, Healthcare policy, healthcare organisation and funding, and Māori Health. And Peter has served on numerous um, government advisory panels in a variety of roles. Um, So, related to policy areas related to public health, health services, and health workforce, including the government's 2018-2020 review of the health and disability system. He's a board member of Te Tahu Haura. Uh, the Health Quality and Safety Commission, and is a member of the Statutory Public Health Advisory Committee. So a, a very well-qualified person to be our moderator tonight. So, um reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā katoa.
1: Thank you very much, Helen. Tēnā katoa, nō fifi ki a pōwhiri te hui nei. Ki kai kōreru katoa, tēnā kia ki a mai ki hui. Uh, thank you very much, Helen, for the introduction. Welcome, everybody, on this cold night. Congratulations for coming out and braving the weather. Uh, we're going to have a uh, very interesting hour and a half together, uh, followed by drinks and nipples afterwards. <clears throat> so, welcome. Um, I'm going to say a, just a couple of words by way of introduction to the National Science Challenges. We've got four experts here, uh, each of whom... Uh, represent one of the, uh, four out of the 11 national science challenges, uh, which were established around 11 years ago, um, to investigate matters of, uh, scientific importance. So each of our four speakers will bring their expertise to a completely different topic this evening. And, uh, just to note that those national science challenges, which have been going for over a decade now, are entering their last year. So in about a year's time, funding will cease for those, uh, those programmes and they'll be wound up. So they've got lots to talk about because they've been working for a long time. Can everyone hear me OK? Good. Uh, now, your role is to um, think of your questions as they talk Each one of them is going to present for five or ten minutes maximum, uh, and then we're going to have a time together for you to ask your questions. So uh, no question is too small, no question is too large, and there's no such thing as a silly question. Uh, Often what you might think of as a silly question is the best question. So please think of your questions as they're presenting to you. So, uh, after a decade or more of work in each of these challenges, naturally, we're just going to get a taste of this evening. Just We're going to dip into their various areas of expertise. And I think that's all I need to say by way of introduction. Remember, your task is to be thinking of your questions as they speak. And then when we uh, come together to, for discussion, uh, once they've spoken we can cover all your questions. So we're going to kick off with Professor Barry Taylor to uh, speak uh, about his work with the Better Start National Science Challenge. Uh, Barry is a local paediatrician. He's a professor of child health at the university and he is the deputy director of the Better Start National Science Challenge. Uh, Barry has a special interest in how children grow and how they sleep. An interesting fact about Barry is that most of us won't know where he was born. And I think that's true, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm gonna hazard a guess, and you can t- tell me if I get this right or wrong. I'm thinking Zaire, or what's now the Congo, but you, you can correct me on that. Inside knowledge. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do. I do. Um, the title of his, his presentation is, What Have We Discovered in Our Nine-Year Mission to Improve Child Health and Well-Being? Thank you, Barry. Over to you.
2: Um, thank you, Peter. Um, and I should, at the start, acknowledge that Peter, until recently, was on the board of the Better Start National Science Challenge, so he actually directed some of the thinking about what we should do and how we should, what directions we should go. I'll start with my um, mihi. Um, Tēnā kato, katoa. Ko tiri, tiri tiri o te moana, te moanga. Ko te awa. Ko aho, a ho. Barry Taylor tiki ingoa. Mō te huru Ka rere te manu. Adorn the bird with feathers so that it can fly. And that last saying outlines pretty well the thoughts of the Better Start National Science Challenge, give the skills and the background and the learning that is needed for children to, uh, to effectively live a full and challenging and useful life as they go through. Um, people talk about well-being. I actually don't like well-being. I when I'm, I'm much prefer the, the term flourishing, which, in, which has a core component of it, has the need for a meaningful life. Uh, as defined by the Greeks originally, a long time ago. So um, rather than talk about my specific projects, I thought the brief was to talk about the challenge as a whole and some of the things that we've done. So I will give you a flavour of what I think we've learnt in nine years. Now, I can't do very much in nine minutes, so these are high-level summary statements which some of the individual researchers may or may not agree, but certainly my view as Deputy Director of the challenge... As to what we've, uh, uh, where we've got to. Because the last year is focusing on how do we leave legacy of what we've learned, so that it actually has a a future. Mission-led research is very much aimed uh, by the government at bringing together expertise across the whole sector to answer a particular problem, Uh, and so um, that. And and implicit was the idea that it would bring people across universities and across any other science uh, organizations to work together and, and bring the different disciplines together in that discussion. That in itself has not been easy. So one of the learnings is that when you start working with people from very different disciplines, and in particular health versus education, there is actually quite a long period of learning a different language and a different way of thinking. And it probably took us two years Uh, of a lot of talking and discussion to try and work and understand how educationalists do research compared to health doing research. Uh, And I guess that that is interesting in itself and it's been a useful learning that you need to put time and effort into that interdisciplinary work. Um, A lot of time and effort was spent in saying, well, what are the big problems facing childhood? We're a mission-type approach would be useful and we chose three areas that we thought were critical uh, ten years ago, still are critical I believe, Um, and they were uh, adolescent mental health uh, and and slightly younger than that because it's really important that children especially if they go on to have, sorry, adolescents if they go on to have children, uh, if they bring into that relationship a whole lot of mental health issues you know that the outcomes for the very young uh, children is not so good. So uh, being prepared and having um, a good mental health by the time you have your babies is really important. Um, so that about 30% of uh, children and adolescents now have significant mental health problems. That has appeared to have increased quite dramatically uh, over the COVID period, uh, and it remains a real concern. I don't think that we have solved the problem because the approach in this research area was to say, well, we know that we don't have the resources in secondary care to deal with the severe end of the problems, uh, and that's not the, not the research we want to do, looking at the severe end of mental health. Um, but can we look much earlier in the piece, look at uh, mild to moderate problems, especially the mild area that is in, in our school-aid children is mainly dealt with by school counsellors, for instance, and primary care approaches, but mainly school counsellors, Um, So what can we do that would be usable across the spectrum in the mild to moderate uh, and that um, fitted in with what children are currently doing, children and adolescents, which is using apps and using electronic means. So can we actually turn what most of us think uh, can actually be a really harmful thing, are there useful things that can actually be done? Uh, using uh, gaming game apps that actually have a functional basis, a functional underpinning in science, to teach skills, um, uh, and 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 I can now answer that. <laughs> so after nine years, I can say yes, you can gamify uh, cognitive behaviour therapy and other ways of improving mental health. But uh, adolescents and even and younger children, they will go to them if you just put them out there spontaneously, they'll go to them, they'll have a look at them, they may play it once, and then they stop. So the problem is not do they work, because if you persist with using these apps, the evidence is really now quite secure that they have a good effect. The issue is engagement and maintaining uh, the use of the mental health apps, and there's lots of them around now, Uh, some of them really based on really good science. Um, So what we've ended up is saying these tools work we had a whole platform for evaluating and, uh, and developing new ones, and, and that's the other thing. You've got to get, Once you do the app, you get the boredom factor comes in pretty quickly, so you've got to develop a new one. So there's this everlasting change if you're going to keep the interest. So rather than do that, our approach has changed in the last two or three years to saying, actually, this is a tool that could be used. So if you're having problems at school and you see a school counsellor, then the school counsellor can introduce you to the app, maintain the personal relationship, the face-to-face relationship that is needed to maintain activity or thoughts or change in this area, and then have the school counsellor bring in the app as a tool, as something that they can then use, say, practice this, uh, play this game. We'll talk about it again next week. So that use of a tool is how pretty well it's now evolving, and the expectation of the Ministry of Health is now taking this up, so in terms of impact... Um, these apps are now, some of them are now funded by the Ministry of Health to actually uh, be used uh, by primary care mental health teams, which is an increasing um, area where funding is going, and by school counsellors in particular who are seeing this sort of day-to-day. So that's this quick summary of that particular uh, issue. Uh, the second, um, Peter's going to glare at me soon because that's just one-third <laughs> okay, The second uh, big issue, which also affects about a third of children, is an unhealthy high weight. Um, and what can I say about that? One of the things that uh, we have shown um, is that at, if you look at the before-school check, which over 90 percent of children are now having at four years of age, you can actually follow over time what's happening with uh, the, the number of, or the percentage of children who are overweight. And we've been able to show that over the last five to 10 years, there's been quite a striking decrease in the amount of unhealthy weight. So unlike other countries, over COVID has actually shown actually an increase in weight. Um, in New Zealand, uh, it looks as though uh, the, across all groups, across all socioeconomic measures, across all ethnicities, the percentage of children that are overweight is actually starting to decrease. We don't have data in New Zealand to say what's happening at 10 years of age, which we'd love to have because in the UK you can actually look at both ages and, um, and see whether this trend is actually across the whole age group. But certainly in New Zealand, in four-year-olds, things are getting better. The question is why, because we didn't do an intervention in the study to actually uh, cause this to happen. What, what about the, we have to say, what are, we, what are the objectives? What, what are the measures that we're going to have for success in this challenge? And it was a certain decrease An amount of childhood obesity. I said, we're never going to be able to do that. (laughs) Um, But anyway, it's happened without our particular intervention. So the the research question has been, what's the underlying cause? And we're still working our way through this, but at the moment the evidence seems to be reasonably strong that it's the quite significant decrease in maternal smoking in pregnancy. It's gone from 30% uh, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, to about 8% now of mothers uh, smoking, and that smoking in pregnancy has a distinct effect on the on the risk of developing childhood obesity so um, there is some thought that there may be a a preschool effect because anybody that's got a child going to preschool will know that things are pretty strict at preschool about the food that you can take and the food that's provided in preschool with quite high standards in terms of healthy food so um, there, there We're still trying to measure that effect and see whether the preschool attendance, which is now funded and increasingly funded by the government, uh, might also be having an effect on uh, the degree of obesity at the age of four. Uh, Finally, uh, sorry, not finally, but finally to do with uh, overweight, uh, we've we've done some studies that started here in Dunedin, the POI study, which suggested that a sleep intervention was much more effective than a focus on food and activity. In preventing child obesity, so that's a, the POI study done with Dunedin parents, showing that at two and at five, there's a marked significant decrease in the, in the risk of obesity if you have a sleep intervention, as compared to an intervention that says you need to be more active and you need to eat healthy food, uh, and show you how to do that. That, in fact, that was the worst outcome was actually in the group that had that education around what uh, healthy eating and being active. Part of the message being that you need to do this, uh, therefore you're not doing it. <laughs> and so I think one of the things I've learned is that actually negative messages in public health are actually probably not very helpful or effective uh, because you just build resistance. Um, and we've got another study where the results are still uh, being analysed at the moment, uh, the Moemoe study, are done uh, um, developed here in Dunedin, which is a Maturanga Maori project looking at uh, how to get a healthy sleep, uh, mainly in Maori and Pacific families, because the attitude and the importance of sleep is very different in different cultural groups. Uh, In Pacific in particular, it's important to go to church, uh, to partake in the the church activities, and in fact to often be up late uh, in, in the hustle and bustle of a large family. The sort of sleep messages that have been given to a white, uh, non-Mauri, non-Pacific group, uh, it looks like it's going to need to be quite different for Maori and Pacific, and that's what uh, the whole study is, uh, is where we'll have some results in the near future to talk about. Um, And I think that's where I'll stop about that. The final um, third area that we have focused on is literacy in children, because learning to read is uh, increased, well is a really important thing in terms of how you do later at school and how you do when you start work. Some people learn to read easily, and if any of you are listeners to the Radio New Zealand on Saturday, uh, Kim Hill's show, uh, this last Saturday, um, you just need to listen to the person who was the first interview for the day, um, who was Emily Hanford, who's a journalist from America, She was interviewed by Kim Hill, and she basically said what I needed to say tonight. I thought, oh, I could just play this. Uh, Basically, it turns out that reading recovery, which most of you will know about because it's been in New Zealand for a long time, teaches children to read by often trying to look at the word, look at the beginning, look at the end, look at the pictures around the word, and try and guess the word. Uh, It turns out that that actually does harm rather than good in terms of learning to read. If you look three years later... Those who've got Reading recovery match samples that then don't get Reading recovery. Uh, in fact, uh, those who don't get it actually do better in reading. So why is that? That's because the, uh, the science is now pretty clear that learning to read using phonics, actually looking at a word and trying to sound out the letters, and then once you hear the letters, uh, rec- you know, sounding it out and then getting the word, teaches you how to look at other words that you've never met before, sound it out and still be able to say it. And people, and the phonics way of learning language, which actually is very old fashioned.
1: I'm about to interrupt. Okay, (laughs) it's very
2: old fashioned. Uh, So we're going back to the past, and now the issue is actually, how do you run that across all schools in New Zealand, where all the teachers are used to a different way of teaching? And so the Better Start Literacy program run out of the University of Canterbury has now got the Better Start Literacy approach. is really a training program for teachers and is now running across and funded by the Ministry of Education across more than 500 schools with some amazing results, actually. People who are really difficult learning uh, to read... Barry.
1: Okay.
2: <laughs> you can see there's a certain passion yeah, yeah. Uh, in no, no, this no, area. Absolutely, but I, that is where absolutely. I was going to stop. Thank you yeah. very much.
1: No, no, thank you so much. And I've been scribbling down questions if you've been going. That was fascinating. Thank you very, very much. Um, and I hope you're all thinking of your questions too. Uh, second up, we've got Professor Perry Guilford, who is a cancer geneticist at the University of Otago and is a the Deputy Director of the Healthier Lives National Science Challenge. And Perry is going to talk about how all cancers are different and that by understanding these differences at the genomic level, uh, we will hopefully in the future see cancer as a long-term disease, but not a fatal disease. An interesting fact about Perry is that he has never watched any Star Wars movie. And, Perry, just to say, you and I have got that in common. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> uh, the title of his presentation is Unraveling Cancer's Complexities. Over to you. Thank you.
3: Uh, thank you. Is our reason the same? And my reason is that I find the world strange enough as it is, and I can't fathom making it even more complex.
1: I think my reason is pure neglect. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, thank you for the kind introduction, and... Uh, Yes, I'm going to talk about you know, the cancer aspect of the Healthier Lives National Science Challenge. And the challenge covered a lot more things around um, non infectious diseases. And there's information over there for you to pick up when you, you know, when you leave tonight. But I'll just talk about the work we've been doing on in the cancer field. So we all know the, the stories around cancer. We all know the late diagnoses. We all know the variable impact of treatment, how some people will get no benefit from treatment, others will do quite well. We've all had experiences of of family and friends who have been treated and then they've had scans done and everything looks good, looks like disease has gone away and then next thing you know, it's returned again. All these things have been plaguing cancer care for generations now. The way that the profession has dealt with This difficulty has been to develop drugs which just kill cells which are dividing too fast. And that starts off in the lab where they'll grow cells in the laboratory, find all sorts of chemicals which just kill those cells dead. So that's kind of effective in terms of slowing down cancer, but it also tends to um, kill normal cells as well and causes extremely severe side effects. So they titrate the drugs down, less killing of the cancer cells, less um, but fewer side effects so of course the treatments become less effective so this is the kind of the conundrum we got ourselves into for you know really for generations around you know cancer treatment so since probably about the early 60s and 70s when we started getting into chemotherapy but since the human genome project um, was completed we've been able to kind of change the entire paradigm of how we look at cancer So cancer is caused by mutations in genes which drive cell divisions, cell proliferation, cell migration, that is how they invade and move around the body, and cell survival. So if you have a mutation in a critical gene involved in regulating when a cell divides, then your chances are that that cell will develop into a cancer. So the Human Genome Project enabled us to look at the sequence, the DNA sequence of all the genes in the genome in you know, thousands and thousands of different cancers, and that has shown us that there are certain, with certain mutations are common, certain genes are co- commonly mutated in different cancer types. It varies between cancer types, but we certainly see a, a, um, a reduced number of genes that are involved in, in various cancers. And once you've identified those genes, you can then start getting clever and making drugs which just target those gene products, I think the genes and co-proteins and we we can develop drugs which just target those proteins. So going from a world where we just took a chemical which just killed things, we now move into a world where we identify, we look at a tumour, we want to get its DNA sequence, we'll find mutations and genes which are driving the abnormal proliferation or survival of that cancer cell, and then dial up a drug which will target that particular mutation, that particular problem, which is making that cell go crazy. So that is leading to drugs which are very precise, hence the expression of precision medicine or precision oncology. So you can take a drug which will just target the defect in the cancer cell and largely, not completely, but largely leave the other cells alone. My mother-in-law has um, been treated for late-stage lung cancer, been on the same drug for about the last eight months, and her only side effect is... With slightly cracked and dry fingernails. I mean, I know it's not always that simple, but I mean, this is one example, which is increasingly a common story where the side effects are really marginal. So we're moving now to a state to a world where we will we'll see cancer not as being a, a death sentence, but a chronic disease which can be managed by using different precision drugs. So the tumor will of course evolve in time. So you will need to find another drug which which matches the new changed cancer, but you can see a world where there'll be several changes of treatment throughout a patient's um, disease, and those treatments will control the disease until in time the, the cancer's likely to overcome that problem, not always, but sometimes, and then you'll move into a second drug to kind of bring it down again. So again, moving away from a fatal disease to a chronic disease. Where Healthy Lives got involved in this area was was not so much in drug development, but in in something called circulating tumour DNA. So as these tumours develop, they will also spill their DNA into the bloodstream. And so we can take blood from patients, get the DNA sequence of those bloods very, very deeply into the blood samples, and we can see mutations in genes which have come from the cancer which released them. That means we can start to do some really clever things. Certainly we can do earlier diagnosis, but we can do things like we can follow a patient through the course of their treatment and make sure the treatments are working effectively. So you know, we've done a long study on patients with bowel cancer and who are getting um, chemotherapy. And we every couple of weeks before each chemotherapy cycle, we we'll take a blood sample and we'll look to see how their levels of CT DNA had changed. That is, how many copies of mutated DNA were present per mil of blood at any given time. So someone with advanced disease might have 2,000 copies of a certain mutated DNA sequence at the start of treatment. The treatment is working, the numbers should drop down. When the treatment started to fail again due to development resistance, those numbers would rise again. So we could get a way to measure effectively in real time how a patient was responding to treatment. And with that, you could then start to tailor your treatment and modify your treatment to each patient. So typically... What happens um, now is a patient will start on a chemotherapy treatment and then after about 6, 8, 12 weeks, they'll then have a scan and they'll go, oh, well, good news or bad news, Mr. Smith, your cancer's bigger or smaller. Which means in the case of the tumour, if that tumour has been grown in that time, that patient has had you know, several months on nasty chemotherapy treatments, feeling very, very unwell and received no benefits. That's called like futile treatment. But by using the ctDNA, we can follow the patient really quickly and within you know, a matter of weeks. You know, when one or two weeks, we can see where the treatment is working. So you can swap it out much more rapidly, be much more nimble, much more agile with the treatments. And so that's really one of the main outputs of our, our research. I think I'm getting to my five minutes, so I will wrap it up there. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Parry. Um, that was fascinating. And again, I've got some questions for myself that uh, we're moving on now to our third speaker, who's Dr. Grace Walker. She is from Nāti Kahununu and Ngārua uh, Grace is a data scientist focused on using Māori data to reflect Māori realities. Uh, Grace works on multiple national science challenges, but today is speaking in the context of the challenge called Science for Technological Innovation, which is focused on developing affordable medical devices. Interesting fact about Grace. Uh, she is a competitive shooter and placed third in her last compact competition. She can explain what a compact competition is. And the title of her presentation is Low Cost Devices and Digital Devices, uh, Services to Improve Access and Care. Kia ora.
4: Kia ora, um, ko, ko orangi kataranaki o ku maunga, ko te me awa waka. So yes, I am probably a little bit of a standout here. Um someone some say I'm a part of the Aging Wells study, but actually I'm a stand-in last minute for um, associate prof or no distinguished professor Jeff Chase. Um I am working on the National Science Challenge SIFTI and I guess the thing that we're doing a little bit different to the other National Science Challenges is that we're actually bringing our tech out into the commercial sector and that's literally my job. Um, So we have been working with diabetes devices, the digital twin space, all coming out of uh, Professor Chase's lab at UC and we are essentially... Well, my role with them is to bring that technology while it's still in development out into the community because that's that's part of my my work. And we get to hear feedback from the community on what's good about it, what's bad about it, would they actually use it, would they not? What's a realistic sale point, what's a pain point and how we can actually alter the technology to be usable by real human beings because engineers can do a lot, but they can't actually think of every scenario from every normal people. So that's my kind of specialty is bringing those who very rarely ever get to engage with humans, I bring them to the outside. And a really, really fun part about my job is I get to bring people, like I said, they don't usually get to engage with humans, I get to take them into super uncomfortable spaces on marae in the middle of nowhere. And the fun part about my engagement is I get to teach them about the processes of what is a poor why this is so important, uh, the different tikanga at different marae, how you do things in a formal setting versus an informal setting when engaging with Māori. They have learned so much, I also make them learn waiata and karakia, so that way I'm not the only one doing it when we're out and about. So the the cultural capacity that's going on in Jeff's lab is probably more than any engineering lab in this whole entire country. The ability to go out and talk to remote rural communities is probably the most in Jeff's lab than any single lab in the whole entire country. Why? it's because I am networked across the whole entire country, and I like to bring technology to community so that we can actually do something good about what we're doing and making sure that it's done right. Um, one of the most like fun things that we kind of did as a part of the research side of the project is many of you are familiar with ethics and how laborious it is and how very non-personal it is. So we're in a marae, middle of nowhere, these people already hate engaging with the system, don't really trust it, don't trust institutions. Some of them are not even technically registered in this country. Yet they're coming to my talks. Um, and the fun thing about that is that when we went to go do the ethics procedure after the porphyry, after we've had Kai, after we've done fuck-fanonga tanga. They were very insulted because we essentially took away the mana from them and turned it into a very institutionalised setting. And it took away the culture. It took away the momentum we had already started in that day. As a result of that, we've now got a kawanata. And that is essentially like a guiding principle that we've now introduced into the ethics at, the UC, at UC in Canterbury, where we go through a new procedure where it is okay to give verbal consent. For many people who actually don't like to write their name down, don't like to sign things because of the issues that it has in tracking them down, dealing with people in the past who actually don't keep their information as confidential as they say they do, They wanna be a part of it, they just don't necessarily wanna be tracked as easily as everybody else. So we've now got new procedures, new policies where we engage with community now and they've helped us develop that kawenata. In addition to that, we think of things where most devices and medical reporting software is designed on males. Particular heights, particular weights and they don't really account for anything else. Diabetes devices are no different. So when you bring a woman into a room and she says, oh, you know those pumps that men design? How the hell is a woman supposed to wear it with a dress? And funny enough, the guys are just like, how would a woman wear it with a dress? Wouldn't you put it in your pocket? Yep, for every woman in this room, you're lucky if you can find a dress with pockets. I I love this one because it has pockets. I bought it in every single colour for that reason. Um, (laughs) It's practical. So when you... Yep, whenever you think about what is the realities of developing devices, what do people need in reality, men don't think about the way women can use devices. We've been hearing about symptoms that women face when being diagnosed with diabetes that men don't deal with. So how are you supposed to account for that? You have to hear from other women who have it. You have to actually go out of your way as a woman to find out what it's like to deal with these diseases and devices. That was stuff we never intended to find out. It was not a part of the purpose. It just happened to be this perfect momentum that we were finding. And another thing that I absolutely love about this project, which is a bit I'll finish on as well, is diabetes affects the eyesight. It's a huge part of potentially people going blind. So when we were out in community and they're showing us the resources that they're getting in size 8, size 10 font, in illiterate communities or, or, or low literacy in communities, and it's very technical, it's for someone who could be a doctor or someone who is highly educated in a higher standard, why are these people having to learn about their disease in that way for something that already affects their eyesight and they can't see? So I took that knowledge and I went back to Pharmac, I went back to Medsafe at an event and I said... Give me your rationale for that. What's your excuse for having inaccessible information and it not being accessible in all sorts of formats? And they turned around and said, we have no excuse. Um, We are now, as of tomorrow, going to be doing a review on all of our diabetes information that is handed out into the public sector to ensure that it has got disability access to it and that it's done in a way that's more accessible to many, many different communities. So... We're out there, we're doing fun things in the, in the development of tech space, but at the same time, just in the few years I've been on this particular project, we have seen changes in the way in which FarmAC interact with us, the way MedSafe have been thinking about this. We're engaged with Te Whata Order, Te Akefai Order, um, and so many other organisations and iwi and community because it's the first time they've had a say and the way things could actually be done in this country, and they really love being a part of the story and the momentum of what could be a part of the new tech coming out of New Zealand. So um, kia ora koutou. That's kind of me in the diabetes space. There's so much more, so come have a quarter cool with me later. Um, but yeah, kia
1: ora. kia ora. Grace. Thank you very, very much. And now we move on to our fourth and final speaker, who's Professor Louise Parr-Brownlee, who's from Ngāti Porto and Te Arawa. Uh, Louise is a professor in the Department of Anatomy at the University of Otago and is the director of the Ageing Well National Science Challenge. And uh, we'll be talking about some of the challenges and opportunities of ageing in Aotearoa. Uh, An interesting fact about Louise is that she represented New Zealand in Orienteering. And the title of her presentation is the challenges and opportunities of ageing well. Kia ora.
5: Kia ora, Peter. Tēnā rā tātou, he mihi nui tēnā kia kautau. Ko taino i mei te na waka kundati mania te iwi, ko kai whakahairi mātua ho o te kai... Kia te tai tanga, ko Louise tokinoa So hello, I'm Louise, I am the Director of Ageing Well National Science Challenge and it is a role that I have absolutely loved doing and um, it's a pleasure to um, be sitting and sharing what we've been doing. So Ageing Well literally is about enabling all New Zealanders to age well. And we're all aware that there's a going, there is a demographic shift that um, we have an ageing population. But perhaps what we're not so aware of is that there is a, going to be a, a period of intense population growth in older people that is coming up. So in the next, so between now and in 2048, so it's 25 years, the population over 65 years of age will double again. But the greatest growth is actually going to be in the people over 85 years of age, and we expect that population to triple. Now, understanding that means that we need to, um, understanding the changes in demographics means that we need to have the right services and programs in place to meet the demands that we can see are coming. They need to be fit for purpose, they need to be culturally appropriate, and they need to be right for everyone. So having the right conversations now is what we're focused on doing. We need to plan and implement what we need for the future. We need it right now in reality, but we need to actually get everything in place for the future. What we don't want is reactive strategies, because when we do that, we kind of are scrambling around looking for something that will solve it a little bit, um, and nothing is ever right when we apply Band-Aid solutions, especially when we need to get those solutions at the time when the demand is greatest. So our in New Zealand needs to plan well for the future for all New Zealanders so we can all age well. So what we've been doing for the last nine years is prioritizing funding that addresses inequity in ageing. So I am more likely to die seven years younger than many people in this audience because I have I'm Maori. Um, but what we've been doing is um, allocating over just over 50% of our funding during our last five years to Māori-positive ageing to address the inequities in ageing that we have in this country. So the growth in older people, the older population, is not equal as well. Māori-Pacific and Asian people have the uh, highest growth rate and so therefore, it's not only important that we address ageing, we need to um, address equitable ageing. And doing this benefits everyone. When people age positively, there will be less uh, requirements for social and financial support, um, and there will be delayed entry into, or maybe even no entry into, uh, aged residential care or hospitals, and that's better for all of us. So we've funded innovative research over the last eight years looking at how ageing might be different, um, and we've looked at new ways to reduce the burden of stroke, We've funded a Tuakana Taina programme, which is a peer mentoring programme, where people that have gone through life experiences such as the death of a spouse or losing their licence then help other people transition through that major life event. And we've also looked at the impact of social isolation on health. Now, accessing uh, services can be really challenging, but it is so critical in order for us to age well. And so some of the funding that we've... um, Uh, we've provided has been around preventing injuries um, and helping people to recover from them and in those projects they're both two Māori projects, Māori led projects um, that have been incredibly engaged um, with an iwi. And these community solutions are sustainable, cost effective and fit for purpose. Um, and one of the examples are the people, they're exercising together, but actually what's really important is that they're just engaging and being active together. The types of exercise they're doing are culturally um, relevant and um, uh, resonate with the people that are doing that. But what really, what we've heard about in the research is, is that it's the social interactions there's a purpose to their day, that they care for each other, there's education on topics that are relevant for them, and there's a lot of wraparound services from their peers and also the professionals that are there with the programme. So there's a win-win happening here. We've also got new understanding about the impact research and two um, of our research programmes on how to have impact. So two of our research programmes have produced films, and they do that to communicate their key messages Uh, so that they can be used on the internet and other sources. But one of the key things about that is it starts conversations. So these projects around loneliness, people don't like to admit they're lonely. They actually, but having uh, uh, a video that people can watch, that they can start to um, trigger the conversation means that it starts to change the hearts and minds of people and that the um, viewers and the whanau start to have those conversations, which is great. We've also funded a project called Te Roro, which is about the brain and it's a, a Māori um, iwi organisation up on and we're looking at how Māori um, Maori understandings of the brain and how we've always kept our brain well. Um, so they're gathering that knowledge and then what they're doing is um, looking at that from a very mātauranga or Māori perspective. And that's very different from a Western perspective. And then they're sharing the, that information in culturally appropriate ways. So they're going to wānanga and having robust discussions. But actually one of the outputs that we're expecting from that project is actually a whakaero, or a carving, where that information is embedded in the carving and resonates with the people that are going to be looking at it. So networks and collaborative community-based projects are very important for our organisation and the way that we're going to achieve our kaupapa. And what we're hoping is that those, um, those networks actually outlast us, that they keep working and that they um, keep building on their momentum. So our research is incredibly collaborative. The communities ask the questions um, and it's only by having the community fully engaged and actually often part of the research team, and that um, not only do they find the best solutions for them, and it will become embedded. So our organisation is incredibly proud of the time and the energy that we've invested into creating relationships. And we are sincere when we talk about our collaborators, our funders, um, as whanau. We all have to work together, ko tahitanga, in order for us to achieve our mission. We might be the funders, but everyone else has got to contribute to the kaupapa as well. Um, and it's only when we do that that we're going to change service delivery and we're going to actually change policy. And when we achieve those, then impact is actually going to be embedded and we're going to have real enduring changes. So, Peter, I'll leave it there.
1: Kia ora, Louise. Thank you very much. So that brings to a close this part where we have had little snippets and tasters from four national science challenges. They span childhood, the middle part of life, and aging, and high tech. So just about everything. So feel free to be expansive with your questions. And now it's uh, the opportunity is there for all of us to ask questions, so I'm just gonna pause for a moment. And um, we will have a microphone which will be moving around.
6: Um, hi, Helen. Uh, good evening, everyone. How many questions can I ask? <laughs> <laughs> so many people here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what,
1: yeah. we'll, we'll let you go. And and um, I have a two questions. On. Oh, yeah. One fine.
6: is for... Barry. Uh, Barry? Just call me Barry. Yeah. Uh, One is for you. <laughs> <laughs> so Sorry. Barry and Perry. Just uh, not very cool. good for English name. Uh, so... The first question is about children's health because I have my son here and uh, I understand, I'm not a scientist, but I understand being a mom, how to look after my son's uh, health. Uh, when he was in the school, I understand the games and the apps are very important for helping them to understand things. But also I want to know how scientists to uh, to give a balance or instruction to, uh, to, to education, uh, to, uh, to schools, to follow. So what the balance? Because if too much, maybe not really help them, but just bring them, you know, to the negative side. That's the question. Um,
2: can, can I answer that before I forget it? <laughs> 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 then, then you can go to your one, Perry. Um, I think it's age-dependent. I mean, the current guidelines suggest that in infancy no exposure uh, would be best. Um, what you need is the interaction with humans. Um, and so I encourage minimal or no, even though it can be a really useful babysitter. So the uh, under two, I actually think zero is best. Um, now, once you get older than two, and certainly by the time you get to school, I don't think you can probably function now without some exposure, though uh, the professor of genetics... Uh, at uh, the University of Otago, uh, children were not allowed to use t- watch TV. So they—they are now in their twenties. Um, he totally believed that nothing was was useful in terms of TV. So they had no TV in the in the house at all. They were allowed, however, to use computers. So I mean, some parents actually take the the the, the idea of actually no exposure is good. Um, I think once you're at school, then it's reasonable to learn how to use computers, and you need to probably these days. Um, But I think the worst part of using devices, which is now not so much TV, things have changed rapidly in the last five years, really, uh, to using small devices and going to bed using. So I think there's now pretty good evidence that at least for an hour before going to bed, there should be no use of a device. And certainly in bed, devices should be banned.
6: Thank you. Oh Yeah, this question is about, you know, because you mentioned about cancer, and um, if there's some rare cancer, for whole South Island, maybe just one person has that cancer, if they have any team or people they are, they would like to pay attention to do some research or help that person mm. because it's not that common. We normally say we would like the team invest time and money to to do research for most of the people. Mm. But if some kind of cancer only just one person has, will, you know, our scientist would like help that person? Mm. That's my question. Thank you.
3: Yeah, thank you. Um, that's actually a, a major... Advance with this precision medicine, where we're looking at the, the the genes, the DNA, the mutations in the DNA. So, in some ways, we have been starting to throw away the location of the cancer. You know, be it lung, be it liver, be it pancreas, be it brain, and we ask, what mutations does this cancer have, regardless of the organ it developed in? So, in this situation, uh, you know, one child in the South Island with this rare cancer, I think what you would do is you would get the DNA sequence of that uh, child's cancer and look for mutations in genes and see if there are any drugs available which are used on other cancers which would affect that mutation. So I think it's a real power of this precision medicines. You can, in some ways, throw away the old rule book of you know, you've got a cancer of a certain subtype and a certain organ. You just look at the DNA, find the mutations, and then choose drugs which work against those mutations. So I think really it has, this whole precision medicine is making a big difference to how we care for rare cancers.
1: Thank you very much for those questions, excellent questions. We have a hand over here. Yes, this is a question for perhaps all four speakers. There have been enormous advances, particularly in recent times with artificial intelligence. I just wonder whether each of you would care to look into the future and might predict what effect artificial intelligence will have on your particular challenges.
4: I love AI, that um, the, the chatbot gives me so many great ideas. Um, so I guess something I didn't get a chance to speak about is the, the use of digital twins. So in the health space, digital twins are becoming closer and closer to d- development where you take information about an individual, compare it to the masses, so it starts looking at variables like age, weight, what medications you're on, how active you are, and then in a digital space you can start altering it. So... If I was to give you X amount of medication, what's the probability of events happening? So AI is becoming better and better in these spaces within the health space. Um, Jeff Chase absolutely loves his digital twin that he's developing in the ICU unit, which is across um, several different countries and different research hospitals, looking at the reality of AI use in um, the digital twin space for administering medication and also predicting the way in which people are going to react to different things and the way you go about it in order to have betterised, personalised treatment care plans. So it's something that we want to bring into our diabetes stuff as well, so that way people can predict the way in which they're going to interact with insulin, how much they may need for after how long, based on their own personal metabolism, the way in which you can do things to try and have more detailed care. So AI is really growing in this tech space, Um, it's got some amazing potential for application, particularly around um, personalized care and diagnostic tools for interactions and probabilities of events occurring. Um, So yeah, we're already in that space and it is so much fun, Um, but that's me. (laughs)
2: Thank you for being positive, <laughs> because I think it's quite scary. Um, for, uh, just two examples. In type 1 diabetes, which is not perhaps so much where you're focused, but um, That's exactly where we are. okay. the new pumps that we're now using in adolescents and younger children uh, actually use a high degree of AI. And I've never seen such good diabetes control uh, in my last 30 years of looking at young diabetics. The new pumps are just amazing. Uh, and now you can pretty well get a normal blood sugar more than 70% of the time if you're using the right pump and the right technology. It's a dramatic change. That's literally my thing. So that's that's the positive. The negatives are the effect. I was had a, had several discussions today about AI um, and uh, my research fellow said, oh, I asked ChatGPT, give me the recipe for a moist chocolate cake and instantly it, provided. it wouldn't provide the sources. Um, but um, the director of the challenge, Wayne Cutfield in Auckland, he said, it looks as though you could actually ask a, 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 chat I, a chat IA version 4 to actually do your whole analysis and write your paper. Just say, this is the tone I want to use. Here's the results. Analyze them and write the paper for me. So that's... Um, and he said, well, bias, the biostats is actually done now by AI because they're, they're using trillions of other people's examples to say this is how it should be done. Uh, and so he was saying, well, we might not need biostatisticians shortly. Now, I don't quite believe that because I think biostats' involvement in design is critically important. Um, teachers, if you take the, uh, the education workforce, for instance... Um, In the future, you will have AI that will design a program for your specific child with these specific ways of learning that will be individualized to that individual child, just like you're individualizing your cancer treatment. Education will go the same way. So what will happen to our teaching workforce if AI takes over and actually does a better job of it than our teachers? I'll leave it there.
3: In cancer, there's um, a great excitement about um, digital twins as well. So um, if I developed a cancer, there may be someone in the world who, ha- who has similar genetics to, m- to myself, to my tumour, who's had um, received lots of drugs and they've got the outcomes of those treatments. So there's real potential to rapidly improve the choice of drugs and the care of cancer patients. But also in terms of any kind of um, scanning or imaging procedure, we're seeing that AI is in a much better job than the human eye at trying to interpret those images. Um, even um, you know, real time processes such as like you know, colonoscopies, endoscopies. If you know, I think we, you know, we currently we see with colonoscopies, the the um, the clinician will often start to kind of fade away before lunch or is it after lunch? And um, you know because they get hungry or or thirsty, and and so they don't see things quite so well. And so I think we're going to see a shift where um, the clinician may just manipulate the the camera through the colon or, you know, the the stomach. Images will be taken, and then the AI will analyse those at a later date or, you know, moments later. So, yeah, I think it's going to be transformative for, for cancer care.
5: Uh, So, I agree that there are lots of advantages um, with AI, but I am also concerned about some of the um, data that are behind a lot of the algorithms. So, um, a lot, when you look at population data and they are being used for the um, algorithms, there are often a a lack of female data in there and a a lack of uh, certain populations, indigenous populations, and for that reason, I have concerns Um, and it's often the interpretation of the data that's really important um, and so cultural contexts are incredibly important for understanding the implications and that cannot be done by AI at the moment. So. And
2: well, I, I'll give an example um, that was given to me today. AI was given two papers uh, and asked to digest them uh, and analyse the tone of the papers. So this is going to your cultural thing Uh, and then uh, they took a paper that they'd written and they said please rewrite this paper with the tone of the other papers and it did it instantly
3: there was a a recent paper and looked looked at um, comparing surgeons capacity to show empathy towards their patients it's unbelievable so (laughs) so so they somehow set it up so um, a series of patients would talk to either a surgeon, maybe you know, through a computer to have a kind of control properly, but through a computer to the surgeon. The surgeon will respond to the patient's questions and then the same patient would then all ask the same questions to the AI computer. And guess which one showed greater empathy? I mean, it's not, maybe it's not so surprising, but um, but you know, it was the computer, did, the AI did better than the surgeon because it learned the right responses, it, could, it knew the patient was distressed and knew the right things to say to that patient, whereas the surgeon either didn't know or couldn't be bothered or just didn't care too much. So I think we're going to see AI actually doing a pretty good job at some of these more caring things as well, stuff we thought they'd never get into, but I think we'll find that she does quite a good job.
1: I'm looking for Hans, and we have a a, a follow-up question. A couple more questions. Barry, in particular, uh, when you were talking about your obesity studies, I wondered whether to what extent you can use the results of the longitudinal study in terms of predicting how, in this case, a decrease in obesity might affect later life. So have you been able to extrapolate your results using that data?
2: Um, So that's some modelling that we are doing, and... Um, not, not actually probably more. At the moment, using the Growing Up in New Zealand study longitudinal study, which is slightly more current because the Dunedin sample is now pretty old, um, and the conditions that they were brought up in is very different actually now. Uh, if you look at how at some of the data from the early parts of the Dunedin study and compare it to current, to current times, so are very very different. Uh, if you just look at a measure of obesity such as BMI in the Dunedin sample when there were four compared to current, it's very, very different. So whether or not the Dunedin study can be modelled to tell us what's happening, we were a bit sceptical about, whereas we think that the growing up in Dunedin study probably gives us better longitudinal data that is relevant to today. But that modelling study is happening and has been done, and there's some nice models available uh, we can talk later um that uh, from Barry Milne in Auckland University who's got some um, models where you can actually change these variables and see what the long-term outcome is based on amalgamating a lot of the longitudinal study data. So that is happening and has been done.
1: Kia ora. Look, our time is just about up, so I'm just going to check any last really burning questions and if not, we will draw to a close Um, I'm going to thank the speakers. I'm going to thank you and then hand over to Helen. But before I hand over to Helen, Grace is going to, I think, wants to sing a waiata. But before she does, thank you. That was amazing. I learnt a lot. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise. And thank you for your really fantastic questions. We've covered so much territory. Kia ora.
4: So when you're in teao Māori, a big component of closing up events and closing up speakers is often done with a waiata to bring everybody together. So one of my favourite waiatas that I have taught my team that I'm going to sing for you guys tonight is um, hariruia, so there's a good chance most of you won't know it, but you'll know the English version when you hear the tune. Um, I'm not going to sing this into the microphone because you will not like your ears at the end of this one. Um, I'm used to singing on marae, so... A koeng o kamahara Ki mauri o te atua E te kamaka e te kaiwhaka ora
6: Kahana te manahua Ko te
4: Thank you for being here tonight, and um, yeah, welcome to the Fano.
0: <laughs> I can't follow that. <laughs> Come on,
1: Come
0: on there we go. <laughs> So I, I think it's been a wonderful evening. And I'd like to say a big thank you to all of the panelists, Peter, for keeping you under control. Um, thank you too for all of the questions and the, the thoughts. Um, I have the privilege of being on the governance boards of two of the, the health <laughs> challenges. And certainly, personally, I can attest to the, the way that people are doing research in the science challenges in a very different way than people did research 10 years ago. And and the work with and co-design has made a huge difference. And things are happening quicker than they would otherwise. So I'd like to just to say a big thank you and ask you again to to applaud our <laughs> thank you.